Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned risk management experts to Red Bull daredevils, there is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage, and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you all want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know that he is well acquainted with risk. His 20-year career has seen him successfully establish operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Dominic has spent most of his career establishing large and successful operations in places like Haiti, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan and so many other high-risk and medium-risk locations. Joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. Hi, I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Nathan Paul Southern, who gave us a deep dive into the links between transnational criminal organisations and China's Belt and Road Initiative. Transnational crime is a topic that's really vast, and it would be an injustice to only cover it in one episode. So given the impact that transnational crime has on international risk. Today, we're going to discuss a hugely pertinent issue, human trafficking and people smuggling. Roy McComb is an experienced former law enforcement officer, having held executive leadership roles as the head of organized crime in Northern Ireland and the deputy director in the UK of the National Crime Agency, where he was the UK law enforcement lead for modern slavery and human trafficking, as well as child sexual abuse. He now provides strategic advice to organizations on crime on a number of international projects. And today, He's based in Mogadishu, Somalia. Thanks very much for joining us today, Roy. That's my pleasure, Dominic. Good to speak to you. Roy, you're involved in reviewing parts of the Global Organized Crime Index, which is a great initiative that adds value to the evidence base, helping decision makers focus on the facts about the international risks associated with transnational crime. Can you help our listeners by defining the problem of transnational crime and how it impacts businesses and communities around the world? Sure. Well, the worst thing we can think about when we talk about organized crime is to try to think about it in Hollywood movie styles. It's not that. It's not The Sopranos. It's not, you know, good fellas. There isn't a kind of a smiling, happy family behind all this. It's a dangerous type of criminality that we see on a global basis. It generates and causes billions of dollars worth of harm around the world. It leads to physical harm to people. It leads to exploitation and it costs businesses and indeed it costs countries hundreds of millions of dollars every single year in either lost revenue or lost opportunity. So you mentioned human trafficking. So human trafficking is a multi-billion dollar industry. And yet, how often do people think about it in their day-to-day business? So in the United Kingdom, when I joined the National Crime Agency in 2014, the estimated number of victims of human trafficking was in around two to two and a half thousand people. This time last year, the figure had grown to about 17,000 people. Now, is that partly because the UK is getting better at identifying victims of human trafficking? Or are there more instances of human trafficking happening? And, you know, that's a conversation we need to keep having. But another thing about human trafficking, just when you mentioned it, is that there's this belief that you always have to be from another country, that you have to be smuggled from your homeland 
to another country. But of course, the reality is that a significant number of people who are victims of human trafficking are trafficked within their own country. And again, I think about the United Kingdom, where around half of all victims were actually British nationals who were trafficked from one part of the country to another part of the United Kingdom. And so we often don't clearly define that in the public understanding because people begin to think that, you know, you couldn't possibly be a victim of human trafficking. You're British. And so, you know, there's still a story that has to be told to the public understanding of, well, what is human trafficking to begin with? Well, it's the exploitation of people for the purposes of, you know, usually making money, oftentimes through sexual exploitation or through labor exploitation, you know, and it involves the movement and the control of people from one part of the country to another. But you don't have to cross an international border. You can be moved from one street to the next and still be the victim of human trafficking. So, you know, if you take any number of the crimes that fall under the umbrella of organized crime, whether it's human trafficking, people smuggling, drugs trafficking, whether it's firearms trafficking, whether it's, you know, cyber attacks, whether it's money laundering. There's just a huge variety of crime types that fall under this big umbrella that we call organized crime. And I suppose the my final opening remarks would be, you know, if you think it doesn't affect you, then you need to wake up because it's close to you. It's probably closer than what you might think of. It's probably in the neighborhood, in the street where you live, and it's probably taken up a form that you maybe didn't recognize, whether it's the form of a nail bar that's being used by Vietnamese organized crime groups, by a barber's shop where Turkish barbers are taking cash payments because it's part of a money laundering scheme, or whether it's car washes where, you know, you've got Albanians being exploited to wash cars at, you know, a couple of pennies per hour. So Organized crime, I suppose, is everywhere. It is ubiquitous, it harms societies, and it often harms individuals to the greater extent. And I understand, Roy, that globally, one in three victims are children. And you mentioned some of the different types of exploitation. I understand from some statistics and reports that we read in preparation for this episode that girls are mainly trafficked for sexual exploitation, whereas boys are mainly used for forced labor. And I understand even some of those percentages, like the ratio of boys to girls that are trafficked has evolved over the last couple of decades. Given your extensive experience, what do you see as the most significant changes in the trends of human trafficking and people smuggling over your career? I think my sense is we have a better understanding of the problem and therefore the numbers continue to rise. So you know, when we talk about human trafficking on any given annual basis, the number is around 15 million people. You just think, you know, that's the population of England and Wales. 15 million people. And that's not an aggregate figure over the last number of years. That's that figure every single year. And those are 50 million people that have been effectively stripped of their dignity, stripped of their individual liberty, stripped of their ability to live ordinary, decent, harm-free lives, and are living in controlled environments where they don't have the opportunity to live ordinary lives. They don't earn money. They're living in very poor accommodation. Oftentimes, they're being exploited with you know, physical harm. They're being made to work. You know, as you mentioned already, Dominic, largely the male population of the human trafficking victims are being used for labor exploitation, but not always the way, and largely females for sexual exploitation. So if you think about the sexual exploitation, one of the things that you know we tried to do in the UK is to try to emphasize, look, this is a supply and demand market. You know, why are women being brought into or trafficked around the United Kingdom for sexual purposes? And well, the reason for it is because there's a demand. So, you know, as long as there is a demand for something, 
organized crime will find a way to deliver on that demand. You know, you go back to the Al Capone days, you know, people didn't stop drinking during the period of prohibition. What Al Capone did was simply to meet the demand illegally, but he met the demand by facilitating the bootlegging, the criminality and the smuggling of alcohol. So organized crime is about supplying that capability, that demand that the public generates. So what we tried to do in Northern Ireland, particularly, is to say, let's tackle the demand we can, you know, we can always see the supply, but let's try and reinforce to men, particularly, you're part of the problem. If you didn't have this desire to be able to walk into a pop-up brothel, as we call them, then there wouldn't be women trafficked into that area for your purposes. So, you know, we tried to target people, particularly men, by saying, you know, this isn't a problem that you can walk away from. You're part of the problem. You're part of the demand side, then the supply side or the victims being brought in for sexual abuse. I mean, what we did on one occasion, it wasn't permitted by the government, but we tried to send a very sharp message to men in which we created this poster, which looked like a sort of an entrance to quite a dingy apartment block. And inside this sort of image that we put up, there was a sign saying, models wanted upstairs, right? Models being a euphemism for prostitutes. And then we said on the poster, addressing this specifically to men, you can enter as a punter, you know, as a buyer, but you will walk out as a rapist. And so we tried to pitch that message to say, you know, don't think just because you can walk in, pay your, you know, hundred pounds or whatever it might be, and then you walk away that there are no consequences. What you've just been involved in is rape for profit. And we try to get that message into the language and the public conversation in Northern Ireland. And the government of the day went a little bit ballistic because they didn't feel quite ready to have that level of dialogue. You know, when you start saying things on the open airways, rape for profit, you know, we thought it was quite a catchy headline to try and emphasize the point. But the government of the day just took a little bit of the collywobbles and said, not sure we can get away with that. And I think that's part of the bigger problem because the public understanding of organized crime more generally is it doesn't happen here, it doesn't involve me, it doesn't affect me, and I shouldn't be concerned about it. The reality from my experience is, well, it does happen here, it does affect you, it does change the price of you know your goods and services, it does drive out you know legitimate businesses, and it does show that people are being exploited where you live. So getting that public understanding and that public sense of responsibility has always been one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, and anyone that wants to understand from a survivor's point of view, back at episode 110, I spoke with Norma Bastidas on human trafficking and sexual violence and exploitation. And she's got an amazing story, amazingly tragic and sad, but at the same time, amazingly inspirational. She's just a fantastic woman. And I really encourage listeners if they want to understand how someone can become trafficked, very intelligent, very capable young woman can become trafficked, how she managed to escape multiple times and how she's gone on to do fantastic things now. I really encourage people to listen to that episode. But you're in Somalia now, Roy, and you mentioned Northern Ireland, and I know you've got experience in many other countries. I wonder if you can help us understand how does transnational crime differ when you look at the different contexts from where you are now in Somalia compared to, say, Northern Ireland? Well, first of all, your legal framework is different. So the legal framework in the UK sets the tone by which certain activities are accepted and certain activities are criminalized. And then you have a cultural understanding. So the cultures between the UK, Somalia, Ghana, Bangladesh, 
Pakistan, wherever I might have been previously, are different. I previously worked in Bangladesh, helping to develop their capabilities against transnational organized crime, particularly to do with human trafficking. And we're having these very helpful briefing sessions with senior leaders in the police. And we talk about, you know, particularly young people, young children being exploited and what are the signs, what are the things to look out for? And, you know, how can police identify the victim, first of all, because that's the first step in getting a, a resolution. And so the conversation was all very proper and all very helpful. But on the way back from the training environment, which was in the police headquarters, on the road back to my accommodation, we drove past a number of these major street junctions in Dhaka. And I was astounded to see these kids that were, you know, six and seven years of age running onto the middle of the street, carrying whatever things they were trying to sell. And I remember turning to the lawyer who was with us, who was part of our sort of delegation. He was a Bangladeshi lawyer. And said, you know, we've just had this training session where we said, you know, these are the indicators of exploitation. He said, these are kids that have got all of those indicators. You know, they're being controlled from the sidelines. You know, they should be at school when they're not. They're out selling things for which they will get no profit. You know, there's clear indicators. And, you know, we're going from a training room to a hotel and we're driving past all the things we've talked about. And yet nobody is doing anything, you know, beside the kids that are being exploited. You've got the local police doing, you know, road signs and controlling the movement of the vehicles. So how can we change that conversation where we're trying to educate police in Bangladesh about the signs, but the police in Bangladesh are inadvertently facilitating the criminality. So, you know, you go to different countries and the context changes. Different countries experience different types of criminality. The work that the Global Initiative has been able to do is shone a light around different crime threats within a region, within a country, and it highlighted the risks within those countries. And it highlighted the resilience within those countries to be able to deal with. So again, if you take the United Kingdom, there's a high level of risk from certain crime types. But the United Kingdom is a very resilient country. It's got a well-structured law enforcement response. It's got a legal framework. It's got an accountability arrangement between the public and the private sector. You go to other countries like Somalia, where the risk might be just as high, but the resilience is considerably lower. But those countries are more vulnerable to being exploited and coming under the control of the organized crime groups. You might be wanting to smuggle people, guns, drugs, whatever it might be. I always say if you can open up a supply line between country A and country B securely, it doesn't really matter what you put in it. Guns today, drugs tomorrow, people the day after, you know, nuclear weapons the day after that if need be. But the world is increasingly a single global market for organized crime. You know, we now see huge shipments of cocaine coming from South America and landing on the shores of Ireland. You know, four months ago, we had a 150 million euro drug seizure off the coast of Ireland, which, you know, you go back five years, 10 years, that would have been unheard of. So the game is shifting always around where the threat from any particular crime type is happening. Today, it might be 150 million euros with the drugs coming into Ireland. In 10 years, it could be a shipload of firearms coming in. So the world shifts around the different crime threats. And I think the work that the Global Initiative has done is a very helpful exercise in shining a light saying these are today's problems in your particular country, in your particular region, and recommending you know what individual leaders in that country can do. And you mentioned guns, people, money, drugs. Uh, how do the different types of transnational organised crime contribute to the facilitation of human trafficking and people smuggling? And what are the key routes and methods employed by criminal networks? So, I mean, if you think about heroin, 
So heroin largely has a Southeast Asian footprint, but with a smaller South American footprint. So any of the heroin will largely have been sourced through from those countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Myanmar, you know, in that kind of central belt of Southeast Asia. You know, so if that is a product and you think about the global impact of things which you don't think about as an organized crime matter. So the US and the UK and the Western forces withdraw from Afghanistan and as a part of the wider agreement, the Taliban moved back into the control of Afghanistan. That has an immediate impact on the attitude to poppy growing in Afghanistan, which immediately changes the supply and the price of heroin, because that's where the vast majority of the poppy is grown that feeds the global market. So you, know, you have this sort of push-pull factor of an event, which is a global policy decision by major superpowers, but it has a knock-on effect on the global availability of heroin around the world because you now have the Taliban partly financing their own activities by the sale of poppy, which is effectively the sale of heroin. So you've got a government in Afghanistan funded by the heroin trade. You know, that's kind of one little sample. Then you get South America, which is, you know, predominantly the source of cocaine coming in from Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, which is just now global. A couple of years ago, we'd have talked about the impact in Europe because of South American drugs coming into the lowland countries, particularly the Netherlands and Belgium. Now you have drugs going straight into Ireland and coming straight into the United Kingdom of significant volume. So, you know, the world is shifting around the supply chains of drugs, guns that were used to murder, you know, I can't remember the numbers, but the people who were killed in the multiple attacks in Paris a number of years ago, in the Bataclan around the Stade Francais, the guns that were used in that had been decommissioned when Yugoslavia as a country broke up with the Yugoslav Wars. So guns that were used in the Yugoslav Wars had supposedly been decommissioned. Some of those guns were then recommissioned and through the Western Balkan supply route ended up in the hands of terrorists in Western Europe and used in terrorist incidents. So, you know, guns particularly have a long shelf life and, you know, they could last for generations and be used in many, many instances around the world. And you and I spoke before we started the recording today about southeast Bangladesh, where there's still about 1 million Rohingya refugees. But there's many other examples, as you've already talked about, in Somalia being one, but there is just so many in Pakistan and inside Burma and Myanmar. But perhaps you could help us explore the socioeconomic factors, such as poverty, political instability, armed conflict, and how they intersect with transnational organized crime to create that environment that's just so conducive to human trafficking and people smuggling? And what preventative measures can actually be implemented to address these? Well, organized crime in its simplest form is about making profit. And whether it's guns being sold or kilos of cocaine being sold, there's always that supply and demand element. But if you take the likes of cocaine, Cocaine isn't grown by the major cartels in Peru and Bolivia and Colombia. It's grown by farmers who have very poor land and who are unfortunate enough to be able to grow largely only one crop, which is the plant that ends up being harvested and being used to make cocaine. So you know, they're not being paid millions of dollars. The cartels come in and say, you will now grow this crop for us. We will pay you, you know, pennies on the dollar for every bale of coca leaf that is harvested. We will then do what we have to do. And along the supply chain of a ton of coca leaves ends up with, you know, two or three kilos of cocaine, which is hitting the streets of Western Europe at, you know, 25, 30,000 euros per kilo. Well, 
back in Bolivia, the farmers getting pennies on the dollar. So they're caught in an exploitation loop by organized crime are saying, you will now work for us. And if you don't, you're at risk of being harmed, being at risk of being killed. You're at risk of losing the only livelihood that you have. So if you look at the images of drug trafficking, it's easy to look at the sort of the narco criminals that are you know on our screen. You think about the Guzmans of this day, El Chapo, and you think, well, he's a big, bad drug dealer. But then you look at the little farmer in Bolivia who's growing the raw material. Are they a victim of organized crime or, in fact, are they facilitating organized crime? And that's the real challenge because at some point they become victimized themselves if they don't grow that product. You then talk about the likes of the Rohingya in Bangladesh. So when you get a whole group of people that are marginalized, that are effectively stateless, who don't have a voice, who become almost a forgotten group of people, they're highly vulnerable to being exploited by you know, organized crime groups who want to make money from them, whether it's the form of sexual exploitation, labor exploitation, or selling of drugs into what is effectively a camp with about a million Rohingya. So, you know, the vulnerability of people around the world creates the first opportunity for people to become either victims of organized crime for exploitation, or they become the market into which organized crime sells its commodities. And so there's a very real connection between poverty and vulnerability because of poverty in individual circumstance and exploitation by organized crime. And of course, there's a rich poor nexus here, which we have to think about, because if you think about the public understanding of cocaine consumption, you know, there's a large number of people who are in the kind of upper middle class brackets of decent society who are you're taking cocaine casually. And of course, they're part of the bigger problem because if they weren't taking that, then along the supply chain of organized crime, you wouldn't see the exploitation of the, you know, the Bolivian farmers, the Peruvian farmers. You wouldn't see people being asked to work in sweatshops, producing counterfeit goods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the rich poor nexus, there's always somebody at the poor end of the nexus being exploited for goods and commodities that people in the richer countries are quite happy to exploit. I read yesterday of a court case back in Belfast in Northern Ireland where a woman was sent to jail, but on a suspended sentence for 12 months, she'd been running a counterfeiting scheme where she was selling branded handbags to her friends, but she'd made, you know, 80, 90, 100,000 pounds worth of profit. And the judge suspended her and, you know, kind of she walked out of court that day. And that seems, you know, well, she doesn't have much of a criminal background, so what's the harm? Well, the harm is those goods are being made by kids in sweatshops, you know, in Far East Asia who are working 16, 18, 20-hour days to produce these cheap but, you know, very good copies of, you know, the Gucci handbags, which this lady in her middle classes is then selling for profit. So she gets convicted but gets to go home that night, and the kids in the sweatshop are continuing to be exploited. So, you know, there is a real rich, poor nexus here, which often involves continued exploitation of the poor for the benefit of the wealthy. And I'm keen to explore another area, and that's around technology. And what ways does technology and even online platforms play a role in coordinating and organizing human trafficking and people smuggling operations? Yeah, it does. And I think one of the early lessons we should always have is that whatever modern technology is being developed for our convenience in many sense, criminals, particularly organized criminals, are considered to be early adopters. So they are the early adopters of whatever capability that might be used. We go back 20 years when the internet became, you know, this talking point and very quickly organized criminals were using it for the purposes of arranging and moving 
commodities and people and goods and arranging the transfer of money and all of those things. They were the early adopters. Law enforcement, of course, always has to work within a legal framework. So, you know, as quickly as organized criminals can grab a piece of technology, whether it's an encrypted telephone service like WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram, law enforcement has to find a way to, you know, break into those systems. But it has to do so within a legal framework. And that's never as easy as happens in the movies. So, you know, organized crime always have this kind of one or two year lead before law enforcement kind of creeps up behind it and finds its weak point. We saw that a couple of years ago in the encrypted telephone service that was broken across Europe. I mean, that had been running for about three or four years. And the amount of criminal enterprises that had been undertaken over those years was just phenomenal because you had this closed cell of very high level international criminals who were confident that their communications were secure because they were using this encrypted telephone service and law enforcement just couldn't find a way to break into it. And for about two or three years, they were effectively untouchable. You know, the millions of euros of profit that were being made to, you know, arrange, transfer people, drugs, firearms, whatever it might be, was colossal. Of course, eventually then when law enforcement in Europe were able to break inside that system, the whole thing collapsed like a deck of cards. But for two or three years, criminals were effectively untouchable. So, you know, criminals are very quick to see the opportunities of technology, you know, to recruit people for the criminal enterprise, to recruit people for human trafficking in particularly. And, you know, WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn even, are all platforms that are used today for, you know, legitimate purposes But criminals see the opportunity and they use that very, very quickly. I mean, it's quite astounding. You don't need to be that sophisticated. But, you know, you click on a couple of links within Instagram and you're suddenly at the homepage of someone who's selling their drugs, their homepage. And, you know, it's just remarkable that this goes on and platforms seem to take less interest than what they would. There was a long running battle when I was in the National Crime Agency, which I think is still going on to try to get those main platforms, you know, Facebook or Meta as it's known, to do more to prevent the sexual exploitation of children. And they have now moved into a position where instead of preventing the uploading of those indecent images of children, which they do have the technology to do, what they've now done against the express wishes of international law enforcement is to move to an end-to-end encryption capability. So if you're law enforcement, you can't see the messages being transmitted between user A and user B, which from a tactical perspective is very, very limiting. So if you're an organized criminal, if you're a pedophile, if you're a sex trafficker, you now have an end-to-end encryption platform facilitated by Meta that you know was a gift from the gods to allow criminals to arrange and to plan and to share their key critical crime information. So, you know, organized crime and technology is never far away, and they're very, very quick and very early adopters of the possibilities. And you spoke about operating within legal frameworks, Roy, and I think most of us really do appreciate living within countries that have a strong rule of law. I mean, I can't park my car for more than five minutes without getting a parking fine these days. But I wonder, I, as you know, worked in law enforcement myself, but I'm just continually bamboozled by the size and scope of crimes. And you talked about how people are somehow managing to sell drugs and other illegal activities on platforms like Instagram. The boldness of it is astounding, but it leads us to a common assumption that corruption and complicity with various institutions at national and international levels must contribute to the success and sustainability of transnational organized criminal networks. Can you perhaps unpack that for us about what is this corruption and complicity that's occurring? Well, Corruption, you're absolutely right. So corruption 
of law enforcement or officials who have a sworn responsibility to protect their country or their neighborhood or wherever it might be, or to conduct themselves in a way that prevents criminality taking place is rampant. Is rampant. I'll give you an example. A colleague of mine visited a country in West Africa. I won't name it. And he was stopped. This is towards the end of the pandemic. And he was asked at the airport to do a COVID test. And he said, well, look, I've already done one. Here is my certificate. You know, I am free of COVID. You know, I've met all of your health requirements. No, no, no. Before you leave the airport, you will have to do another COVID test. And it's going to cost you $1,000. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. I just don't think that's right. Here's my certificate. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Yes, you must. Yes, you must. And $1,000 was quickly, well, listen, will you give us $500 and we'll do this COVID test? No, I'm not doing Well, what about $100? And of course, he refused and he was arrested. And he was arrested and only because he happened to have a second mobile phone, which the law enforcement agency didn't find. And he was able to ring the local law enforcement contact, the UK's National Crime Agency liaison officer, who was able to spring him out of custody. He would have been in prison for how long? But the beauty of that story is he was in the country to deliver training on corruption. So the irony of him being stopped and being the victim of a possible corrupt act, and that's quite a small you know, small activities. But, you know, if you can't rely on the honesty and the integrity of law enforcement, well, who can you rely on? And, you know, so often we are let down by people who consider themselves to have a high level of integrity. And then you read about people whose activities are far, far short of that expectation. So I think corruption is sort of a cancer, particularly within law enforcement, which is my area of expertise. And, you know, if you cannot trust people to do their sworn duty, then you know you've real difficulties and it becomes another rich environment in which organized crime will exploit i did some training recently in ghana and i was giving them a scenario about how somebody coming through an airport who was met by a corrupt law enforcement officer could have been bribed in advance you know the border official at the airport if i was an organized criminal i would find that person whose job is to stop the traveler coming in and out if you can corrupt them then the person can come in unfettered and bring in whatever drugs or commodities they want to bring in. So I said, you know, give me an example. If I was to pay a border guard $100, would that be enough to corrupt an official? And then what I said, why would you pay this person six months salary? You know, if you're an organized criminal that's making hundreds of thousands of dollars in a given trade, $100 is loose change. And yet there you have the opportunity to bribe a border official, which opens up your channel for your couriers to bring in whatever drug commodity you want. You know, for $100, it's nothing, it's loose change. And that's how easy it is to corrupt someone, particularly in developing countries, but it's not a crime that is unique to developing countries. The so-called developed countries of the world, you know, the five eyes, the Western countries are equally vulnerable and equally culpable in their criminality, who oftentimes will do the exploiting. You know, so corruption, particularly in the business environment, where large scale business contracts are being won, many times that's being won because of, you know, greased wheels and bribes that are being paid and friends and family favors that are being done for people. And it can be as obvious as cash or it can be less obvious as, you know, future promotion. So in corruption just undermines the whole structure and the ethics of how decent society is supposed to run. And you see it more in developing countries where perhaps the legal framework is not there to identify it and prevent it, but also, you know, it's still happening in the Western world as well.
And Roy, when you look around the world, there's obviously lots of opportunities, there's lots of things to be excited about. But what are the things that concern you the most? What are the international risks that are at the top of your mind? Well, the first one is always public ambivalence. Public ambivalence to me is that sense of, well, we don't care if it's happening. We don't know if it's happening. If it's happening, it's not happening to us. As long as it doesn't happen to us, we're not really that bothered. And you know, law enforcement always needs a good public relationship, a good public response. People who will pick up the phone and say, listen, I've just seen this, but actually, you know, you should do something about it. When you deal with organized crime, if I can do this comparison, if we talked about people dying, if 5,000 people died in England and Wales last year from terrorism, you would never see the word terrorism off the front page of the spreadsheets of all the newspapers. It would be on every news item, 5,000 people died, That's you know, 10 people dying every couple of days, 100 people dying every week. 5,000 people dying would be a continual national crisis, and we would move heaven and earth to try to change that. And there'd be action plans, there'd be task forces, there'd be an energy around the fact that we have 5,000 people dying from terrorism. And in fact, the number is increasing year on year. Now, for terrorism, read organized crime, read drugs overdoses. 5,000 people died last year, 2022, from drugs overdoses in England and Wales. Where was the public outcry? Where was the demand for action? Where were the street protests? Where was the recalling of parliament? Where were the people standing on corners demanding action? Where was the real outrage, the public outrage? Where was the wailing and the gnashing of teeth? And it's not there because there's an ambivalence towards organized crime that facilitates organized criminals to bring about their crime and oftentimes it leads to harm. You know, 5,000 people died. The world keeps spinning. Nobody in the United Kingdom seemed to miss a heartbeat. Change that into terrorism and it changes the public consciousness. When we talk about drugs, we talk about organized crime, we talk about the exploitation in other parts of the country. We talk about people, you know, 16, 17,000 people being exploited in one given year. And that's the tip of the iceberg just for human trafficking. So you have 5,000 people dying, 17,000 people being exploited for human trafficking. The figure for human trafficking is probably five times that. So we have 100,000 people. You know, suddenly the figures are significant. You're talking about the size of a small town, and yet there's still a public ambivalence. You know, you go across different parts of the world, and there's a public acceptance, almost like there's an acceptable level of organized crime that we're just prepared to live with. And that's the bit that's really frustrating to me that, you know, for as long as there's a profit margin, organized crime will find a way to sell and to move their commodity. And as long as the public turn a blind eye and are completely disinterested in it, then organized crime will continue to reap dividends. I mentioned about the kind of middle-class lady back in Northern Ireland selling counterfeit goods. She thought nothing of that. She thought that was simply a little hobby that she could make a few quid at the weekends. But actually in Bangladesh, in Indonesia, in China, kids are missing school. They're being held in sweatshops. But the link between what's happening at one end and the harm that's happening at the other end just isn't being made. That's law enforcement and our government We haven't been harsh enough to tell people, you the consumer, you the people in the comfortable homes, you're part of the problem because you're buying these commodities and you're part of the reason these kids are being exploited. You're part of the reason why women are being sexually abused daily in comfortable houses in the United Kingdom. So that's one answer. It's a very long answer, but kind of public ambivalence is one of the major problems about trying to tackle organized crime because people think, not my problem, Jack. 
definitely public ambivalence, situation awareness and meaningful action are definitely required to reduce the risks. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Roy. It was a really insightful and interesting conversation with you. My pleasure. Good to talk with you. Well, that was a great conversation with Roy McComb, expert on transnational crime and other security and crime-related issues. Today's episode was coordinated and produced by Ben Lawson. I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International West Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak again next week. You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.